everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be with you again podcasting. It's been about a month since, or a little over a month actually, since my last podcast, which was part seven of the Bible Prophecy Timeline series. I do have part eight coming up soon. The next installment is going to be about the Mark of the Beast. I think I'm going to make it sort of a, uh, a just a study of the Mark of the Beast, but particularly with regard to the timing of when the Mark of the Beast happens in relationship to the uh, seven-year time period. But anyway, in this episode, I want to talk about all the stuff that has just been uh, piling up in my notes as, uh, as the last month or so has uh, gone by, so it's just sort of a notes rant episode. Uh, though I do want to start off by talking about a project that I've been working on for several months, which is finally ready to announce, which is the Bible Prophecy Archive. Probably the best way to describe what it is is to play the two-minute video that is embedded on the main page at BibleProphecyArchive.com. So here you go. Welcome to the Bible Prophecy Archive, or ARC, project. This is a nonprofit endeavor to curate and preserve quality teachings on the subject of Bible prophecy. We sometimes take for granted the access we have to good theological information online, but the network of servers we call the Internet is actually quite fragile. Whether it's a natural or man-made electromagnetic pulse, a cyber attack, or censorship from an oppressive government, we could all wake up one day and find that the data we thought would be around forever is just gone. What we've done at the ARC Project is sought out the best articles, books, audio, and video from multiple Bible prophecy teachers, and with their permission included those resources in a zip file organized by topic. The file is big, and although the actual size of the file will change over time as we update the information, it should always remain under 32 gigabytes, which is a standard size of very cheap data storage products. There are two main ways we envision people using this information. The first is by downloading the file either on a micro SD card or USB drive and simply using it to learn about Bible prophecy. The second use is solely for the preservation for the future church. This is where you would download the file. Ideally, you would keep it safe and dry with a note inside explaining what it is and how to use it. We will provide a note like this as a printable document on the website. It's our opinion that the future persecuted church will probably have access to cell phones, if nothing else. So we've designed this information to be readable on the average mobile phone. For that reason, we recommend using micro SD cards over USB drives since they can easily be inserted into many phones, but you can also buy adapters to do the same thing. You need to unzip the folder to view all the files, which is why we recommend first downloading the zip file to a computer where it will be easier for you to unzip it before transferring the unzipped folder to a data card. You can unzip or extract folders with some cell phones, and there are some apps that help, but you would also need a data card at least twice the size of the file you're trying to unzip. So in this case, you would need at least a 64 gigabyte card to unzip it. A few more things to say about this. First, a couple technical things. Um, so there are three different download links at the website BibleProphecyArchive.com. They're all to three different servers that I've paid to host this file. Right now, with nobody trying to download them, it takes me about an hour to download the file. I expect that to jump way up, especially after this podcast and a lot more people are trying to download it. You can try some of the alternative links and it should be a different time depending on how many people are are using that link to download the file, but it certainly will die down, I'm sure, in a week, two weeks, or whatever, and I will be mentioning this again. The file currently is about 18.6 gigabytes. 
I don't know the, the actual number of files yet. The table of contents is almost ready. We're going to put it on the website when it is ready. But I'm guessing it's probably in the hundreds and hundreds of files, audios and videos and lots and lots of art, uh, articles and these kinds of things. Um, so it, it's a genuinely good library that was put together by just a truly faithful and just the perfect person for this project of, of going out there in the internet and, and, and curating, truly determining, looking at every piece of content and looking at it and saying, does this fit in here or not? And then of course, all the stuff that goes with the archiving and organizing and putting it in the right folders and everything else. It was, it's a major challenge. And this is only 1.0. The current uh, idea is to just keep it going. We're gonna go for 1.1, 1 .1, 1 1.2, and really, and, and I think it's gonna be even better right now. We probably have, I'm just guessing here, 10 or 15, maybe 20 or so um, teachers that have given us just full permission to use the material that we've asked for. Uh, you know, people like Alan Kirshner and uh, Charles Cooper and Albert Sharpie and, and uh, um, uh, Ryan Habita, and I could go on. There's lots and lots of people that have agreed to let us use their material. And I expect that number to grow. You know, it's been hard to get permission sometimes for people because it was hard to explain what we were doing. But now that we have it up and we can, you know, talk about uh, what it is and we can show them what it is, I expect it to be able to even grow and we can get even better information. So I really, really hope it continues to, uh, to, to grow as just a, a good offline archive. And, you know, any number of things, as I said in that video, can cause us to lose a lot of information. Uh, my particular views, uh, I really do think that we're going to go through sort of a dark age before the end times. Um, and I believe the church is probably going to go into the end times less prepared than they are now. Uh, but that's just my hypothesis. It could be, it could all start soon, you know, so, but even then, if it starts soon, I still think something like this would be necessary as an offline archive. So I, I, it really doesn't matter what the scenario is, just a straight reading of the Bible means that we're going to need something like this. So again, you can go to BibleProphecyArchive.com and uh, check it out. All right, so let's move on to my notes. And the first thing I have here is Omicron, which has been sort of the story of the day for the last month. There are a lot of things to talk about with Omicron. I want to start off with something I feel is just not being talked uh, enough about, and it has a lot to do with how you interpret what Omicron is doing, in my opinion, which is the origins of of Omicron. Where did this thing come from? And it's a really good question because it has these 50 or so mutations that biologically just don't show up out of nowhere. They don't show up by any mechanism that we know of how like the Delta variant showed up. It's something different. The The level of mutations are so, so, such that it is it requires a different story. Uh, and the other problem with the, the mainstream sort of take on it is, well, this is the mainstream take on it, is that it, it, its closest uh, ancestor is a version of uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 from March 2020, i.e. the very beginning of this whole story, like Wuhan, uh, uh, you know, fish market type stuff. So that's the earliest, you know, genetic ancestor. And then all of a sudden, a year and a half plus uh, later, it shows up with these 50 mutations. And there's no mechanism to understand how that happened, especially in light of the fact of how fast it spreads. Um, so the, uh, the, for example, the, there are three competing mainstream explanations for this, and they don't talk about it because why would they, you know, they already can scare people by other things, but we'll talk about that in a minute. The first one is that it somehow infected an immunocompromised person 
like a person with AIDS or something, and they somehow just spun it, you know, all these times in their body to create these mini mutations somehow or another by some mechanism. I'm not exactly sure. I don't know if it's ever been explained. Um, that that there, there, something in their body just pressured it so significantly to make these 50 amazing mutations and without spreading to anybody else. That was critical. It, it obviously didn't get out of this one person. Um, so that's one theory. Another theory is that it, you know, around March 2020, it, it jumped into some animal population, some uh, it has to be a herd, right? Because there's so many mutations, although anyway, it gets into some herd of animals where it just spreads like wildfire and makes all these mutations. But, and then somehow a year and a half later, it jumps back out of that, uh, herd, uh, animal herd and into the human population. And, uh, that would explain how it could be so different. So, so much of a mutant without having infected anybody during this whole time. Another theory is that it somehow got into some kind of unknown people group and just ran wild in them. And we didn't know about it because they're, they're the, uh, you know, there's whatever that the, on some island where have no contact with humanity or the rest of humanity, right? So that's another theory is that it went into them and, and infected all of them. And then somehow, I guess, I don't know, somebody took a plane, a missionary or something came back and, and now everybody's got it. Um, so none of those are really good theories. Um the I should guess I should talk about the the seems like the most obvious theory of the people that know and are, are talking about this is that it's a lab creation you know it's it's just like all the other things and the reason it's closest ancestor is March 2020 is it's you know the same kind of thing when they created whatever version was released uh, on the population in March 2020. They had, you know, even by Fauci's admission, though, the, the original sort of plan for the gain of function was to make a lot of these different sort of versions of this. So they had a, a stable, if you will, of viruses to work with. I'm not saying that's what happened here, but I am saying that, you know, on record, the stuff that they were doing with bats in Wuhan and gain of function uh, was to generate lots of different varieties of the thing. And the way that they generated those varieties was, was typically, if I understand it correctly, with humanized mice. What that means is that these mice have uh, ACE2 receptors like humans through genetic engineering. ACE2 receptors are part of their cell, and it means that that's how this virus, this coronavirus, attaches to human cells. So it, it, it's being trained to infect humans by running it through mouse populations time and time and time and time and time and time again. You have to do that. You have to keep running it through the populations. And it's something I've said in the podcast before. These mad scientists, they don't actually know how to make weapons out of viruses. They know how to like jam one protein into another protein like a, a kid and then give it to a rat who with humanized uh, uh, cells who then turns it into a weapon for them. They need it to get into a population so that the, the human biology that knows how to uh, avoid things and mutate to things, that it's the thing that makes the weapon. They just, they don't, they're not that smart. So I, I there's some lots of theories from rational people about where this came from. And I, I think the lab origin is a good one, but there's a couple different things going on here. One is this thing in Botswana where there is a report from Botswana that it started from these five, you know, uh, nationals. It won't name the country uh, in Botswana. They, these guys came to Botswana, and that's where it all started, this patient one, two, and three. But they won't name where they came from. And it's suspected that they're, they were Chinese because Botswana's got, you know, major debt to China, and they wouldn't mention it. There's a lot of different 
stuff going on there. I, I, I don't guess it really matters where it came from. My main point here is to say something about the way that this is being treated in the media. So we all found out about Omicron on the same day. The media just flipped a switch and just started yelling at the top of their lungs about Omicron. And it was at a time when like no deaths were happening. It was a long, long time before a death happened, you know, but the media just went crazy about it. So that whole thing just seemed so fake and that had to come from top down. I can't imagine how as controlled and as bought off as the media is that they could all just sing at the top of their lungs from the same song sheet unless they were directed from somebody from the top down, whoever is calling the shots there. So this is part of a narrative, Omicron. Um, now there's a couple, if it is, if it did come from a lab, which is my hypothesis, um, there are two possibilities that are going on. One is that is really dangerous. I know everybody's going around saying, hey, this is the end of the pandemic uh, because, because all things being equal, this would be the end of a pandemic. It could be that it was released uh, from a lab to be kind of like a antidote to the whole pandemic, to end the pandemic. I don't think so because um, never in the history of the world has governments given up power voluntarily and they're getting so much power right now. Why would they want to end that train? I can't see a way for that to happen. And they're not going to give the powers back anyway. So they need another uh, a, a crisis to keep it going. And why would they just end the crisis that they had going? That could. So I don't think that it's this, uh, this gift that's going to end the pandemic. Although I will say that that is the logical conclusion of looking at this, it spreads so fast. It's like, they keep saying like measles, but it's R not, it's just super, super high, right? So it's gonna infect everybody really, really fast, almost maybe the fastest spreading virus ever, but it's not, um, it's not, doesn't get you very sick. So it immediately takes over all the bad variants and makes all the variants good. Now, Geert Vandenbosch, who I've mentioned several times in the podcast, is a person who has warned the population that, hey, the, the main thing that you should never do in a pandemic is vaccinate them against that virus during a pandemic because you're going to put immune pressure on that thing to find a way around that uh, vaccine. And if everybody has the vaccine, then it's going to keep jumping for people that have that same immune pressure to cause the mutations. So Geert Vandenpoche put out a, a video saying essentially that, yeah, hey, Omicron on the surface looks like it could be the way to save this whole thing, except... If you guys vaccinate everybody against it, if your answer to Omicron is, hey, everybody, go get boosted, go get bo boosted, then you're risking something that's almost too dangerous to even mention, which is if you, if, if you caused immune pressure on this thing that found another way to get to another part of a cell receptor or, or something like that, because right now it's sort of hindered by its inability or, or difficulty in, in attaching to certain receptors or whatever. If it finds another way to do that, at that kind of r not, that kind of infectivity, we could be in for, for like a, a world-ending sort of virus here. So yeah, it's sort of a big deal to, 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 to not put too much pressure on this thing to, to, uh, to mutate. And look, I don't know enough about this to say that that's what's going to happen, but that was Geert Vandenbosch's uh, take on this. But I think I'll take a cautiously optimistic, no, I don't even think I'm optimistic about it. I, I can't, I see what they're doing with Omicron. I mean, you know, you look at the front page of CNN and they'll admit that Omicron is not that big of a deal in terms of putting people in hospitals or killing people or whatever, but they are 
pushing every single narrative just as hard. You know, we've got to vaccinate the kids now. Got to vaccinate them because of Omicron. We've got to shut this down because of Omicron. I mean, they're, they're not stopping with any of that stuff. And I'm still basically unsure as to just the short-term direction because I do think we're starting to see pretty obvious evidence that this is infecting vaccinated people worse than it is um, unvaccinated people. I think that probably the simplest answer to that is just the immune exhaustion and other sort of, um, you know, ADE and other things that people have been predicting for a long time about the combination of mRNA and the spike protein, um, just in the, you know, the T cell drop and all the things that are happening, I think with the vaccinated population. But so it could be that it, and if we go through this winter and, you know, we find that it's more than just uh, the flu that's killing them or Omicron that's killing them and maybe cancer rates are higher. We just don't have enough data to really predict the short term, let alone the long term with any of this. But I will say to conclude this part is that there is something fishy with Omicron. I just don't know what it is yet. The next thing on my notes is something about a previous podcast I did, which was competing theories on a societal collapse. So I couldn't quite determine if the coming totalitarian government, and I don't necessarily, again, mean Bible prophecy stuff. It could be, but my guess is that it's just another cycle of totalitarianism that's coming. Um, But whatever, if the sign's happening, then I'll be the first to change my mind. But it does seem like the people, the elites with all the money and the power are really, really, really focused on that goal. And I can't see any human way out of this box. We also have a number of trends and forces that just historically tell us that that's where we're going. So it's also just a cycle of history in which, you know, people uh, work really hard. They, they are tough and they, they fight off tyranny and then they become decadent and tyranny gets them again. And then they got to have another couple generations of feeling the effects of this is what totalitarianism feel like, feels like. And then they got to rebel against that. And the whole cycle starts over again. So we're obviously at the end of that cycle. And here comes the totalitarian uh, uh, systems again. So we, we've got these trends and forces that we're fighting against. That seems to be where we're going. My question was, are we going to, do we get there by everybody? Because this whole thing with this coronavirus and the vaccine, it's just so huge. It's just such a bold takeover. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But the question is, is the truth going to come out and then there's going to be riots in the streets kind of thing? Or is just more censorship going to happen and they just, you know, strong arm us into this system? And I've sort of landed on the ladder that that the the system is going to get stronger. It's going to censor more people. It's going to be more brutal. It's going to do all those things that it needs to do to be more totalitarian and to suppress uh, liberty and freedom. And the main thing that it's going to do is suppress uh, truth or continue to suppress truth. But here's another aspect of this is that I don't think it's necessarily mutually exclusive with the idea with the truth coming out. And that was always sort of my big problem is that because it's so huge, because you can easily prove this narrative wrong just by actual data, and because it's a global situation with smart people and broadcasters all over the world and languages we don't speak that are doing amazing things all over the world, just showing the actual data, because they're just in order to keep it going, they just have to a bold-faced lie. And right now, there's not as, there's not that much control over the internet to get away with that. I mean, yes, they've sort of herded most of the discussion onto social media and stuff, but that's not where 
where the only discussions are. So, and the data is the data. They can't just straight up lie about the data typically, because if they do, I mean, it's almost game over if they catch them doing that. And you can catch a person doing that if a government said, oh, not, you know, the actual data. So what they're mostly doing with the data is not showing it. I don't know if you've tried to find out what the all-cause mortality is in, in the United States. They used to publish it all the time. There's just no knowing it, apparently, in the United States anymore. It's a national secret, I suppose. I, I suspect somebody will do a Freedom of Information Act for the last two years to find out. Because once you do, you find out how many people died um, from actual COVID. Because right now, they're just telling you how many people... Oh, these died. They died from COVID. But... And you don't really know about the vaccine versus the not vaccine because the way that they've been counting them is so corrupt, right? You know, if you die from the vaccine, either after the first vaccine, anytime after the first vaccine, uh, up to two weeks after the second vaccine, and you die from the vaccine, which most people that are going to die from the vaccine die during that time period, they get counted as a unvaccinated person, besides the fact, obviously, being vaccinated because they died 48 hours after getting their first or second dose or whatever. But anyway, so once you take all that out of the equation, you get something like we saw with the UK and they actually had to do their equivalent of freedom of information act just to get those numbers. And those numbers showed that if you took a vaccine in the UK in the last year, you were twice as likely to die than an unvaccinated person. So however many millions of people, let's just say, I don't know, a million people died uh, that were unvaccinated in 2021 in the UK, 2 million people died if you, that were vaccinated. 2 million un, or vaccinated people died. So you were double the, the deaths, basically. It wasn't quite double, but it was enough for that to be it. it. That's game over right there. How anybody could see those numbers and think anything else. But, never, but anyway, I guess my point is they can't lie. The truth will come out. But the question is, will anybody care? And of course, yes let's say 10, 15, 20% of the people will care. And those people will continue to care as they are being censored, as they're being taken over. And eventually that will come to a head where those people will have to make a decision about their life, about their freedom, about their families, about food, about all these different things. And that, whatever it is, 10, 15, 20%, that shrinks down pretty considerably until, until you get to the people that just won't compromise um, and then whatever that number is, they just get, they get killed basically. When it comes to that point, when we're at that point, that's when, you know, the heads will roll. Now back to some of the things that, so that's my main thing is that I have a slightly more pessimistic view in that, yes, the truth comes out totally and completely, um, but nobody cares. So I've got a few caveats to that pessimism, which is, about the things like your Joe Rogans and the things that are obviously not, um, I don't want to say not accounted for, because if you are planning this out, you would have to account for them. You would have to say, look, the, the internet is still an open system. The truth is going to get out there. We just need to control that narrative. And when stuff comes out, we call it a conspiracy theory. And we've got that sort of psychology working for us. All that stuff is planned out, right? The problem is that, and, and they probably get really good at making sure they don't give the public that many options to show the numbers. So for example, I think of these things like uh, polls or whatever. Somebody does a Twitter poll and it just blows up you know, against the narrative and it just really shows some kind of numbers. That kind of stuff is typically, I think, made, you know, kept down. I mean, Twitter polls are not that influential anyway or whatever, but different things like that. 
be, are, are kept suppressed. And I, I believe, you know, in place like, places like China, where they've been at this for a long time, they, they're very concerned and about controlling those things that give people an option to show those kinds of sentiment or numbers. And the reason is because this massive psychology is building uh, with the people that want to some kind of reason to just show that, you know, any kind of thing when, and this amount of censorship, if they see a dam breaking a little bit, man, they will pile on because they have so little to, to, to do. So, so for example, this Anthony Fauci uh, book, that uh, was written by RFK Jr., which is a unbelievably good book, uh, by the way. But if you, it, it's number one on Amazon. It probably still is number one on Amazon. And it was difficult for them to censor that because if they did, it would just be this obvious thing that they did. They could they could throttle it, but they need to be caref careful, especially with RFK, because number one, he's a Kennedy. Number two, he's a lawyer that has a lot of experience. He basically brought down Monsanto, right? So he's he knows how to, he knows how to sue people. And so if they did mess with the numbers and something like that, he probably, if there's data that's available that he could check against what they're doing, they need to be careful with these kinds of things. So I'm sure people didn't even read the book, but they saw an opportunity to show their, their, their voice or whatever. And they bought that Kindle book and they kept those numbers going. My point is that there, those things exist and they're planned for, but I, I bet sometimes it happens that it's more than they could that they can plan for. And so things like your Joe Rogan and the, 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 uh, Robert Malone, uh, 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 interview recently. And the one before that with Peter McCullough went super, super viral and people are rallying around Rogan. And I think that it's interesting because he is really, really hard to cancel. He is, he is, if he, if he plays, I mean, I don't know what they're going to do with them. It's, it's, it's how do you solve a problem like Joe Rogan is probably on the minds of many evil people right now. And, you know, again, they probably planned for it, but the numbers are bigger than they thought, you know? So that's waking up a lot more people. It's changing those percentages. It's changing those percentages. And this is kind of where I want to pivot to with this. And it is such a dangerous game that they're playing. So maybe, well, it was always a dangerous game. I think the point I really want to make is how bold it is to try to take over the entire globe and to do it on such just razor thin margin of error. I mean, you know, they're risking everything for something that has so many points of failure. It is just it's bold. It's bold. And I, I want to talk about conquest really quick. So man, the, the, the history of the world from the Sumerians to now has been about conquest. And for most of human history, conquest has been fairly straightforward. You get an army together, you go conquer one uh, army. If you have, if you're particularly fearful or you're particularly benevolent, you can get that army to join you. And then you guys go and fight another bigger army and you get that army to join you. It's like a big snowball effect, right? So you get to conquer and conquer and conquer and conquer. And eventually you get to rest on your empire and then it will eventually crumble because that's just what they do. And so, so man just tries to conquer people and conquer lands and geography and stuff like that. It, you could look at it as satanic. I think that's a possible explanation for it. I do think that, the, that Satan is described as a seven-headed, ten-horned beast, which is defined as Satan's essential attempts through the agents of man to take over the world. So there's something a little bit satanic about the attempts to take over the world. Um, but I also think it's human nature. Uh, maybe following human nature, probably, yeah. Anyway. So that's happening until about 100 years ago, whatever it was, World War I. So World War I, you can no longer 
do that anymore. Germany was trying to take over the world. They had a really good plan, the Schlieffen plan. They were gonna they were gonna conquer their neighbors. They were gonna rule Europe. They were gonna be had this great idea, and they probably would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those uh, darn Americans or whoever. I don't know exactly, but the point is, it didn't work. But after World War II, especially, is when the bomb was developed and it basically put an end to man's favorite pastime, taking over everybody with military, uh, traditional military might. But as it turns out, the best way to conquer the entire world is not through guns, it's through unlimited money. <laughs> so if you can get a central bank to basically just have unlimited money, we don't know who the owners of the Federal Reserve or any of the central banks are, but whoever it is that owns those banks, uh, which is a secret that nobody knows, um, they've got unlimited money. And if you have unlimited money, you have unlimited power in this world because you can buy any company that you want. That's what unlimited money means. You get to own BlackRock and to buy all the houses. You get to uh, you get to buy every media company, especially in America, once they took away the uh, the limitations on how many media companies you can buy. And all, there used to be little things like that, but then you just bribe the right people to take that law away. And, you know, it's just about money. It just becomes money. And you can look at this from the sort of uh, uh, secular perspective that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And maybe that explains why they're all ped pedophiles and evil and, uh, you know, want to kill the population. I mean, that's been like something they've been put in writing how they want to, to kill off whatever it is, 80% of the population. So maybe all that power has made them crazy uh, or, you know, maybe it is satanic and at the top they are literal worshipers of Satan and that's why it's such a tight-knit uh, group and all these other things. I don't know. Well, I do know it's probably that, but my point is that that's where we're going and that's really the enemy that we have uh, in front of us. But in terms of the end times, I think it's important to know that Satan does not have control over when that clock starts. But he just is doing the thing that he did, you know, the day before and the day before that and the day before that, which is conquest. Satan was in World War One in the Schlieffen plan, and he was in World War Two with Hitler, and both of those things didn't work. Um, he was in some of the things that did work. He was in the Soviet Union when that took over for what was that, 80 years? Uh, millions and millions of people dead. I'm sure he was in with Mao and the, the revolution that killed another hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. So these things happen and they don't fall sometimes. China's still, you know, doing pretty good by all uh, uh, accounts. Although I will say this, that these things do have cycles in our world. And I actually feel that China will probably someday be the beacon of truth in a perfect world. Because they're probably the next major totalitarian regime to fall based on the, just the numbers. Uh, and when they do fall, they are going to be so pro-liberty, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be this... I mean, ideally, if it was, uh, this beacon of liberty where they know so much about totalitarianism and, and, and how to stay away from it again. It may be that they are the, uh, the picture of freedom in the future. And I think that Christianity is playing a role in China right now. I don't mean to pivot exactly to this, but maybe I do. So I, I saw a thing the other day that China was really trying to crack down on social media that was sharing Christian posts and liking Christian posts and creating Christian content and gospel-related content. And of course, they've always been sort of anti-Christian and, you know, tearing down churches and whatever, but it's really accelerated lately with Xi Jinping. And um, it, you get the sense that Christianity is sort of out of control there. And that's the nature of Christianity. Christianity does not thrive in America in the lap of luxury. Christianity thrives 
in that setting. And so I'm sure it's just, you know, a really thriving church uh, there. But uh, my point, I guess, is that 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 has happened to other totalitarian regimes before. Rome is a good example. I mean, just the critical mass. I mean, yes, it was Constantine or whatever, but there was a critical mass of Christians that was happening before that uh, that was that was damaging the, the heart of Rome, which was its paganism or whatever. It's just, if you want to look at it as a good cancer, that's what Christianity does to totalitarianism regimes, totalitarian regimes. And so that will happen to China. It will just hit this critical mass and it just can't be totalitarian again. It will just, anymore, it'll just break. So the last thing I have on my notes is what I've called a theory of evil. And it was sort of came about when I was thinking about the way that we've put, you know, sexual perversion of all types on pedestals these days and how the trajectory is such that you give us what, 10 years, 20 years, it's just going to be, you know, the worst form of debauchery sexually and I'm sure other kinds, but I'm particularly talking about sexual immorality, will be just, you know, as far as it's ever gone, but but what I mainly want to say there is that that as far as it's ever gone is not something new. In fact, I think it's very, very ancient. That level of uh, sexual immorality is like maybe even the baseline for humans. That's where we go, and we go there fairly quickly. <laughs> and so a couple of things to back this up in the Bible. So first we see, you know, really early on, what is it? Seven generations from Adam, we have uh, the flood of Noah. And I know people talk about, you know, the genealogies and the Nephilim and all that stuff. And I, you know, I agree with that. The, 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 that was happening too. The Nephilim on the, on the earth in, that, in those days. And that was a part of it. But what the Bible says in Genesis 6, 5 is not about that. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what it says, besides the thing about, you know, he's perfect as his generations about Noah, but this is talking about the thoughts of the heart of man being only evil continually. And, you know, maybe that's because they were genetically whatever. I don't know, but that's not what it says. It says of, of that, that that's where the whole world had got to in a very short amount of time. Seven generations, yes, they were living longer, but seven generations, the whole world was corrupted with only thinking about evil. So then we get Noah, right? Noah, boat, he's got his three sons there, his three sons procreate. Not very far from then, we have Ur the Chaldees and Abraham, right? So that's basically Samaria. So we're still talking what is that, 4,000 BC or something. And the earliest known civilization, if you ask a historian when a civilization began, they're going to say Samaria, they're going to say Abraham, right? Or Abram at that time. So he shows up and what's the world look like in Abraham's day? Well, it doesn't look great. He, so we have a situation where um, Abraham, uh, uh, first of all, with his wife, Sarah, they go try to go to Egypt and he says, hey, you got to tell them you're my sister, because if they find out you're my wife, they're going to kill me and take you. Right. So and, I, and I, this happens another time. And I think it's the other time it happens is important because it shows you that it wasn't a crazy thing that he was thinking. That's not the story here that he was being crazy or whatever. He knew that that was the state of play in that time in two different cities geographically distant. And to tie that together, look at what happens with Abraham's brother Lot, um, right? So a little bit later in the story, Abraham tries to, you know, he has dinner with the angels before they go to Sodom and Gomorrah and says, hey, you know, 
try not to destroy the whole thing. I mean, if you can save it because of 10 people, then do that. And they're like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll spare it if there's 10 people. But there wasn't, apparently. And they go there in the whole just crazy scene in which these angels who look like men, apparently good-looking men, are th there's a riot outside of Lot's house because the men of the city want to rape them. And Lot offers his daughters up to save everybody's life, okay? It's crazy. It's craziness what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's not just Sodom, it's, it's Gomorrah. And maybe that was a, a it had, was gotten particularly bad in Sodom and Gomorrah, but I don't think it was much different in Egypt or that other place that Abraham went, just a little bit more civilized. <laughs> anyway, so the thing that happens later in this story is the Tower of Babel, okay? So the Tower of Babel happens, and God says, look, all right, you guys, nothing will be impossible for you. Um, I, and, you know, if this continues, he divides, he, he confuses their language and then divides them up according to the number of the sons of God. So he basically, he just, he gives everybody, he, he divides up the world in, 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 in these sections and says, you guys go out there. He gives them according to the number of the sons of God, which I interpret that he, he, he sets one of these, you know, uh, angelic entities over them. I'm pretty sure it's not good angelic entities. He gives them over to what they want to worship. So their gods in the ancient world were probably, in a sense, really their gods, your princes of Persia and this kind of thing was happening. And as Mike Heiser is fond of pointing out, in that next chapter, he says, Abraham, now that that's happened over here, I've, I've divided up all the nations, given them languages, given them a god. Uh, but you come over here. I'm going to be your god. And you're going to be my people, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you, etc., etc. And what does he do? He gives Abraham a covenant, which will later turn into the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law, and, and circumcision was sort of the, the, the thing he gave him in terms of law. And, and, he, and he does make it a point that it's about righteousness, too. So right from the beginning, he's saying, you guys got to be different. And he institutes with the Mosaic Law, essentially a, how should we look at this, a... Uh, a life jacket, no, a seat belt or something like that to keep this one group through essentially artificial means, that is to say a law, don't do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't, don't have anything to do with mediums, don't, uh, you know, sacrifice your kids to stuff, and obviously a million other kinds of things. That they were that they did, and he gave them all these signs to be like, "Hey, look, wow, parting the Red Sea, big deal. This is real. You are our God. We will follow these laws." And it artificially keeps this little tiny group from becoming what the pagans did around them: Molochs and the sacrificing their kids to fire, just all around them, just chaos. The whole the whole Bible is their their surroundings are just complete debauchery, right? Um, around them, but they are kept sort of artificially pure. For what reason? For the Messiah. And Satan this whole time is trying to bombard them and, and, and get them into to all kinds of sins so that he can ruin this plan of the Messiah. And it almost happens like so many times. Uh, uh, Chuck Missler makes the point of like, oh, what is it Joachim or whatever? There's a blood curse on Solomon's line. And, it, and it's like, oh my gosh, they, they, there's now a blood curse on Solomon's line because of the sin. What about the Messiah? They, they can't have that line. It's going to come from Solomon, right? So now they've cursed the Messiah because God has now cursed this because of the sin. And then Chuck Missler says, you know, he pictures this angel 
you know, talking to the other angel and saying, hey, watch this. And it's actually through Nathan, uh, you know, David's other son, that he, he circumvents that whole blood curse and then comes down through uh, all that into, into Jesus's uh, line. And so it was even a narrow thing that, that all these provisions were done and it still got to that point with the Messiah. And of course, now the Messiah... You know, no one is unredeemable in that regard with the, with the Messiah. So, anyway, it's a great story, but the but the overarching part that I want to get across here is that man will default to that level of sexual immorality and every other kind of immorality um, left unchecked. That is our natural desire, and so we see these things being promoted, and we think of them as some kind of new thing or whatever. But we're just living in this world where. Christianity is so permeated the modern world that we have these sort of cultural life uh, seatbelts that keep us from going there, uh, uh, even if we're not particularly religious. You know, the, the 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 very fabric of society is made out of pieces of the Bible in our the modern society, and so therefore we had this 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 prevention from getting there. But eventually, uh, I'm assuming that we will. Um, Right. I think that's it for today. Go to the website, BibleProphecyArchive.com. Download that file. Tell me what you think. Uh, I am going to do the next series on the Mark of the Beast. Why don't you email me and tell me what you want to know about the Mark of the Beast. Uh, my email is ChrisWhite79 at ProtonMail.com. See you next time.